podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca is about one of cricket's most remarkable spells by the man who bowled it himself. My name is Asif Karim. I'm a former Kenyan international who's managed to play cricket and tennis. I'm currently a businessman and recently I've become a fellow arbitrator and a mediator. In 2003, my mate and I were backpacking around the World Cup and we headed to Durban for the Kenya versus Australia Super Sixers match. We didn't expect much. As good as Kenya had been in the tournament, no one expected them to put up much of a fight against Australia, who it already looked like they were going to win. Brett Lee took a hat-trick early on. Kenya limped to a subpar total, and Adam Gilchrist started smashing their bowlers out of Kingsmead. The match was heading for a very obvious result when what looked like a middle-aged insurance broker, and to be fair, Asif Karim is a middle-aged insurance broker, came on to bowl. And what followed next was extraordinary, as the world's best and certainly most brutal team was stopped dead in their tracks by a man who had played a lifetime of cricket already, but no one had noticed. So in this episode, I talked to Asif Karim, the man who took a lot of big wickets that no one realised he was taking, and then one day got famous for dot balls in a loss. Asif, thank you for coming on. I just want to start with your father. I hope I get this right, but please correct me if I'm wrong. He won 25 straight Mombasa Triple Crown tennis tournaments. And when he played cricket against the MCC, there was a rumor at least that he was asked if he would be interested in playing county cricket. He was an incredible athlete, your father. He was. I mean, I would say he was an icon uh, in terms of Kenyan sports. You know, coming from a very humble beginning in 1926 when my grandparents moved to uh, Mombasa. And remember, it was a colonial-ruled uh, country, coming from one colonial uh, continent to another colonial continent. And so the economic conditions were very tough. And then so you have a 16-year-old boy winning the Mombasa Championships with a, a tennis racket that he bought from an auction for five shillings where the strings were even broken. And so it was phenomenal. And then he, he went on to win for 25 uh, consecutive years, which is, I feel, a record on his own. And then, of course, in those days, sports was everything. In the community that he lived in, cricket, tennis, volleyball, and football were the main sport that was played along. And so he dominated in the three sports that he, he loved playing, which was uh, cricket, tennis, and volleyball, the traditional volleyball. So yes, uh, and you're right that in... Um, 1956, when MCC visited, he had played very well against them and he was uh, offered to, to play county cricket in those. But then in those days, it was not heard of. You know, even for, for a guy from Mombasa, forget going overseas, even going to Nairobi, which is 300 uh, miles away, was unheard of. So it was a, a non-starter, but yes, he had the opportunity. And he ran his own sports shop as well. Obviously, uh, yourself and your brother were very talented athletes. So you really did grow up in this environment of sport, didn't you? Definitely. And I think that played a very important role because, you know, everything starts at home. And I think it started from my grandparent. My grandfather, despite you know, going through very challenging times, migrating, where the source of income was nothing but looking for an employment. And here is a, a man who's now telling his uh, five uh, children to go out and also play sports. And so I think his encouragement uh, was very good. And all his children were into sports, but my dad took it to a completely new level. And I think that was the inception of how we were encouraged at home also 
And obviously, when you see your father doing well, being in the newspaper every other day, you know, and, and that, those days, newspaper was the only media that you could uh, pick up information. So you see his photograph there. The kids are talking about it in school. So it was a very special feeling. And his encouragement to us was priceless. And that's how the, the sport grew within our family. I mean, as a 16-year-old, you turned up to a game where you were supposed to be either the scorer or the tough man, maybe a little bit of both and helping out. It was quite an important game. Um, you end up playing. Can you tell me a little bit about how you ended up playing in that game? I used to play very uh, social cricket and I was doing well in the school cricket and playing for the second 11 for the club. There was a three-day match where a visiting team was coming from Zambia. And obviously when a strong team would come, uh, the, the club that I used to play in Mombasa would invite three or four formidable cricketers from Nairobi so that the team could, could be a balanced match. And so for whatever reason, I was named the 12th man for that match. So obviously we go there, it's exciting because some big names were coming from Nairobi. So just to, to share the changing room or to be just part of the squad, for me, that was a novelty on its own. And as they say, fate is one of the players for the team uh, did not show up for whatever reason. So obviously there was a, they needed a, an 11th player. So being the 12th man and helping out in the scoring, I end up being the 11th player for the day. And so it was a three-day game. I had no clue how those three-day games were being played because I had never played before. So one of the senior players, just before lunchtime, asked the captain that if there's somebody who can spin the ball, a left armer or a spinner. So the captain says, yeah, there's a young boy who's standing right now in the far end. He can kind of bowl. So he said, yeah, give it to him. It was a three-day game. And so that's how I got in the second ball. I got a wicket. And, and then that was the change of all the events that happened. And I picked up 10 wickets in that two innings. And then obviously now I became the top uh, of the whole town, uh, the whole club. And the, the guy, Zulfikar Ali, who's, who's a huge name in Kenyan cricket, was all over me. I mean, he, he is a guy we were looking at as who is this young boy that doing so well. And so he, he kind of encouraged me, gave me the motivation uh, and even offered me to play for his club in Nairobi. So that also was a huge novelty. But I think that was the beginning of being aware and the public to aware that here is a young kid who can bowl some left arm spin. And that's how it started. There's a couple of details that I remember you telling me when we've talked previously. One was the batsman's name was Yusuf Patan. He was known as one of the biggest hitters of the cricket ball in Africa at that time. And his nickname was Tarzan, which I think gives you an idea. You're a second 11 player. You're not expecting to bowl. You've already taken one wicket. You now have this legend of African cricket sort of in front of you. Do you remember, you know, the situation and what was going through your head? Yes, I mean, he, he was another big name like Zulfi Karali in, in Zambia. I mean, you know, he was a huge stocky guy, big guy, you know, walking into the wicket. And so, obviously, I've heard of him. Maybe I may have watched him once, but you hear a lot of things about him. So, But then I think I was naive at that stage in the sense that I don't know who really I was bowling to. So I came with my normal naiveness and kept bowling. And, and within no time, we got his wicket. And so Zulfi Karli, who struggled even to bowl to Tarzan because Tarzan would hit him big sixes. Now, if Zulfi Karli is being hit all over, then who am I to do that? And so it was a phenomenal thing to get him. And I got him both the innings, the first inning as well as the second inning. So, you know, it cemented the confidence. It cemented uh, that I have some potential here. And what was good is that people like Zulfikar and the other senior cricketers encouraged and felt that I could do well in cricket and that I should pursue 
cricket on a more serious uh, note. And so, obviously, as I said, getting thousand twice in two innings was also a very, very historic day for me that day. At 17, you're still very much a kid. I've, I've seen uh, the photos. You're keeping impeccable records <laughs> of your own career. So I've seen the photos. You played your first game against Zimbabwe, and Zimbabwe are smashing Kenya everywhere at that point. And then the batsman's name is Duncan Fletcher. Again, the skinny kid comes on and gets him, what, was it first ball? Indeed, it was on first ball. I mean, that you again didn't know who Duncan Fletcher was. In fact, getting into the Kenya team was also another story. Because I was in the squad of 30 after that 79 series. I then played for Mombasa Sports Club, who played in the national division. So again, I had a very good season. So they put me in the Kenya squad of 30. Obviously, it was just to be in the number, but I was never going to be in the top 15. So I was not in the 15, not even in the reserve. And a week or 10 days before the tour, senior left-arm spinner gets injured. And so now they have a problem. So who comes in? So by that default, on the 11th hour, I was asked to get into the team. Anyway, we go to Zimbabwe. It's a huge mixture because Kenya was the dominant cricket team in East Africa. Zimbabwe had just become independent. They were known as Rhodesia. They played a lot of cricket in the Curry Cup in South Africa. So there were some big, big names in, in that uh, Zimbabwe and South African cricket that we knew that they were powerful. But I had no clue who the names were or who, who had done what. Anyway, we, I got selected for the first three-day game. And in my mind, a three-day game is something where you start very slow. You know, you bowl 20, 30 overs, the score is about 30, people are just taking things lightly. So as we go into the field, the first seven overs, the score is on 70. So I am wondering what is going on here. Anyway, so I'm a young kid who's just making his, his debut in the team and the captain gives me the ball. So he's a left-hander, which I normally also not very comfortable bowling to as a left-arm spinner, you're more inclined to bowl to the right arm batsman. Anyway, so I just come and float the ball and Duncan swings it you know, as he was swinging the other bowlers. I mean, there were 70, as I said, on about seven, eight overs. Gets the top edge and then everybody screams, wicket on debut. So again, I had no clue what that meant. So then I was explained what it meant. It was my first delivery on international cricket and to get the wicket of a famous cricketer known as Duncan Fletcher who went on to do wonders of Zimbabwe went on to be the coach for the England team, went on to coach the Indian team, and of course, a very well-respected cricketer in his own right. What I find interesting about your story is that at that point, you're 17, you you basically plucked from obscurity when you're 16. You're very lucky to even get the game. 17, you get a bit of luck, you play for Kenya. At that point, any other young player in the cricket world would have gone on to be developed and become a long-term asset for their, their national side. You actually go a completely different path and you end yeah. up playing tennis instead. And so you go off, you played in the Junior French Open and you played in a lot of junior tournaments uh, throughout Europe, didn't you? Indeed. How did that happen? I mean, you obviously your father was a great tennis player as well as being a great cricketer, but how did you choose tennis? Well, again, as I said, he, when I was growing up, I didn't even know that he used to play cricket until I got a little older. Because when I was a young baby, I used to see him play tennis. So for me, he was a tennis player only. And so because of that, and he used to encourage us, I used to go and play tennis against the wall where he used to play. And so I developed interest in playing tennis. And as I said, in those days, after school, the only uh, alternates we had was to play sports. There was nothing else. Unlike now, where we have the, the social media and so many other opportunities or, or choices. 
So I used to love playing tennis and cricket was because I was playing in school and it was a social thing in the community. So it was a simultaneous issue. And remember, I became the tennis champion at the age of 12 in the under 12 tournament. And so I kept winning the junior tournaments. And at that same time, in 1980, just after the Zimbabwe tour, there was a Beyond Ball trophy. This is a trophy that's played by 16 top juniors of the country. And I was going to win that tournament in Nairobi. And by winning the tournament, I was selected to represent Kenya in the junior tennis in Europe that year. And that's how I, I managed to go to play to Europe. I mean, I lost all the matches in the first round. Because remember, I was playing in Kenya only and thinking that we are doing well here. Only to realize that when you go out there, there's a huge big world out there. The levels are completely different. But that exposure helped me do well when I went on to go to America on a tennis scholarship. I mean, that's interesting in itself because the only sort of formal sporting background that you have is getting a tennis scholarship and going to, it was Howard University, wasn't it? Howard was later. I first went to Florida in Palm Beach Junior College. It was a two-year scholarship I got there. A community college is normally two years in the U.S. And then you go on to your junior year and the senior year in a university. So my brother was there before me who had a tennis scholarship also. And so, again, he got that opportunity because of my father's network with a guy who was uh, originally from Uganda, was a tennis player, and he was in, in Florida. So as he was visiting East Africa in the 78 or 79, he had a conversation with my dad, and so he was asking what your kids are going to be doing after they finish high school. So from there, the conversation built, and because he was also doing well, my brother, they said we will give him an opportunity a scholarship, but it's very important that when he gets that scholarship, that he must be good enough to be in the team and that his grades must be good enough to remain in college. Those are the two fundamental requirements for anyone to remain in college and get a scholarship. You must be good enough to be in the team and you must have minimum grades. So he went on to do very well. And so he had a good stepping stone to create an opportunity for me. And of course, the same requirements were for me that I've got to be good enough to be in the team and then I must have decent grades to remain there. And fortunately, we managed to do well. And as I graduated, I was then looked after by about five or six universities. But I chose Howard University in Washington, D.C. Uh, for my uh, third and fourth year. Again, I had a full scholarship there. So tennis played a very important role as far as giving me exposure to play good level tennis and to be able to study in America. And in those days, again, it was very much unheard of to go to the U.S. on a scholarship, especially getting a sports scholarship. So that was the history of how I got into the tennis and the, and the education. And I suppose that, especially when you went on to Howard, but also in, in Florida, you would have been training like a low-level professional. You still have to worry about your studies and everything, but we know how much American universities and colleges put pressure on their athletes to perform. You really become a professional athlete, at least in your mind at that stage, don't you? And you do go on to represent Kenya. You Did you captain Kenya in Davis Cup tennis? Was it another tournament? No, I played the uh, Davis Cup, but I captained in the President's Cup when we went to Nigeria. Yeah. We went to play Davis Cup in Egypt, but the President's Cup was in, in Lagos uh, the following year. But as you rightly made a point, I think in those days, I think there were two countries that were, remained competitive and pushed their athletes to the maximum. One was the USA and I think Australia. I mean, Australians are also very, very competitive in what they play. 
they want to win and they train very hard they play very hard so i think that helped me because coming from a background where it was purely on a social basis remember i was 16 17 18 in those days you're living in a very small town where where you may have heard of big names or you may have seen them on a magazine we didn't have the exposure of watching television or live coverage on sports so i was was more of a social thing so when i went there the weight training the diet pushing for running and so many other things came out and that really really helped me to where i got over the years including to the cricket that i'm sure we'll talk about yeah well i mean you have an incredible record where at one stage you were playing a tennis tournament and a cricket match in the same day uh, and it all uh, sorry you're playing two tennis matches <laughs> and a cricket match on the same day. You you went and did the toss in the morning for cricket. You then went back uh, to play a singles match, which you lost. Sorry to bring that up. <laughs> you then went back to play cricket and then came back for the doubles match in the afternoon, but you got there too late. And that, that was a final. So you, you were that good at both of those sports. Why did you pick cricket over tennis at that point? Well, again, that's a very, very good question. And remember, the, the tennis was the Kenya Open, which is the ultimate tournament in Kenya. you know and and everybody's desire is to win at least one kenya open so the week before we played the quarter finals of the cricket i was captain in the club i got a 80 or man of the match now we're going to the semi finals and that week the kenya open started so i mean i was not even sure whether i get to the finals and i went on to get to the finals it was the biggest dilemma that i've ever had in my life that on a saturday afternoon I now have to make a decision because the Saturday morning was the semi-finals of the Kenya Open, which I won. And now that afternoon, we're playing the doubles and we win. So now you've got the singles the next morning to play the final. You are in the semi-finals of the cricket where you're captain in the team. And then you've got a doubles final to play at about four o'clock. What do you do? It was the most horrific, horrific situation that I was in. I consulted, but there was no clear answer on this matter. and so i really don't of course on hindsight i should have made one clear decision on what i should have played but at that time you know like any ambitious sportsman you want to try and juggle and try and be everywhere because it was important that you're playing a team sport where the team is relying on you as the captain as a senior player and then you've got your individual sport which is a kenya open which is another big thing so obviously i, I thought i'll be wise and i'll try and, and do what you just described i went to the ground hoping that I win the toss so that I put my team into bat, irrespective of the conditions of the day, so that I could go back to the other place, which was about 20 to 30 minutes drive from where the cricket was. And that made another problem. So go and play, then come back, try and play whatever batting I need to do, go up to the field, try and quickly get some wickets or win the match, and then rush back. Unfortunately, everything faltered um, on that day and uh, very, very disappointing. But... that then became a defining moment what do i need to do next mm. and remember there was a lot of prejudices and a lot of to put it very bluntly racism on what happened because thereafter there was also a davis cup match against romania and you look at the current form of the sports person when you're selecting the team in that period so because i took a stand on certain issues i was not even invited to be in the squad of the davis cup let alone to be in the team the people that i had beaten in the tournament were in the squad so that was disappointing secondly indian cricket was now going to a new dimension a year and a half later the associate trophy was being hosted by kenya 
1919, Holland Kenya had reached the semifinals. And in, up to 19, only one a team would qualify to play the World Cup. And like any other cricketer, the World Cup is the ultimate. Mm. I mean, even for professional cricketers, you could be playing as much professional cricket as you want. But if you have not played the World Cup, it's incomplete. Well, there was a touring team, wasn't there? Like at that stage, teams from India would come out to play and, and other touring teams. So I don't know what you'd call them. you call them almost like semi-professional touring teams. But you played against a team yeah. called the Indian Stars. Yes. Would you mind telling me who your three wickets were there? Do you remember those? That was in 1988. Yeah, yeah. that was 1988, 89. And, of course, uh, that was one of the biggest teams that came to Mombasa and Kenya. I was representing Mombasa. And the Indian stars had players like Kapil Dev, Dilip Wang Sarkar, Roger Bini, Kiran More, British Patel. I mean, those are all huge names for Indian cricket. In, in it was definitely a good team. Not a good team, a solid team. <laughs> because at that time, Wang Sarkar was number one batsman in the world. Mm. I think he's the only cricketer who's got three uh, hundreds at loads. And he was rated number one in 1988. If you look at the records, he was rated number one. Then, of course, the legendary Kapil Dev was there also captain in the team. And uh, again, I come into ball to Wang Sharkar. First ball, he gets beaten. And second ball, he gets his edge and I get his wicket. Those are huge wicket. I mean, you know, to nope. get somebody of that stature. No wonder you remember he was number one in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, at that time, I didn't know he was number one. <laughs> but obviously, people started talking about it. So, And maybe that's the reason... It's good for me not to know who I'm playing against. I'm just treating him as another cricketer and taking him on as a challenge of, of who I'm going to bowl to. And so, as I said, the cricket was building up. We even had a lot of visits from South Africa because remember when now the apartheid, post-apartheid 1991. So a lot of uh, provincial teams would come to Kenya as a pre-season. Uh, Northern Transvaal, we had uh, Natal. Um, Clive Rice had also come uh, with the Natal. Sean Pollock was there. Hans Klusner was there. This I'm talking 92-93. Mm. A lot of those teams were coming and we were now getting for 94. So as much as it was a good thing for, for the South Africans to come here, it was equally important for us to be prepared solidly because A, the tournament is in Kenya. B, three teams were going to qualify for the World Cup. And in 93, Zimbabwe visited Kenya. They had just gotten the test status. They'd gone to India. And on the way back, they came to play Kenya on one day. And for the first time, we beat them. Though it was a friendly game, but it was a huge win for us. So our sense of belief became stronger and stronger with all these competitive matches that we got through. And we believed strongly that the 94 tournament, Kenya, if not win, we must qualify because that is the the best opportunity that we will ever get. We had a very good team with a lot of experienced cricketers in that team and some youngsters coming through. So main reason of why I diverted to cricket, as I just explained, there was a light in the tunnel as far as the World Cup was coming. Mm. We were doing well as far as the cricket was concerned. And of course, there were the bad memories I had on what I went through, that, that final, it kind of shook me up. And then the politics that was going on also in tennis. So those are some of the reasons how I moved into cricket. Of course, I am disappointed with myself because I was very young to have left uh, tennis. I think I was only about 28 or 29. So there was still a lot of potential, a lot of room for me to continue. So for that decision, I am actually disappointed with myself. On that. By 1996, you have qualified for the World Cup. 
you go up and you play against India. I know what ball you want to talk about against India. I mean, Sachin Tendulkar's on 99. You've got a couple of catches in. You still believe that you got Sachin out. The umpire disagreed with you. Would you like to take me through that ball? Sure. I mean, uh, when we were going to play that World Cup, for us to just play the World Cup and to be there was like 90% done. It was a lot of satisfaction because we had gone through a lot of hard work. We had a very good tournament in 94. And so once we qualified for us, it's like we won the World Cup, you know, for us to be there. So now the scenario was that we're going to go there, but it was very important that the Kenya team becomes competitive. We were not expected to win any matches, but in our belief, we wanted to believe that we were competitive. And we had a very, very seasoned and a very honorable coach called Hanuman Singh, who was also a former Indian cricketer. And he gave us a lot of sense of belief that we were equally good, if not better, with some of these cricketers that we were going to play. And we obviously thought that he was just trying to encourage us. But as we progressed in our cricket, post the 96 World Cup and other matches, we believed that, yes, we were a good team. We needed to get some more exposure and to do well. So our first match was against India and Katak. We had a decent score of, I think, 199. And so we wanted to go out there and see that we can put some pressure on them and get some wickets and to make the game competitive. Of course, Sachin and, uh, started very strong. I mean, he was just dominating our bowlers. And, uh, but I, I was tight on my bowling. I think I bowled nine overs, two maidens, one for 26 at that stage when I came to bowl the 10th over. So Sachin is on 99. Obviously, he must be getting jitters also because any batsman on 99 wants to get his 100. Secondly, it was Sachin's first 100 in the World Cup. He hadn't scored. That was his, going to be his first 100. So as I said, usually I, I had a lot of belief in myself. I was always competitive and I would not let go very easily. So Maurice and myself, we discussed that, you know, he's on 99. Let's just put some pressure. Not that it was going to make any difference because he was flowing. But I said, we said, let's put it, you know, make it exciting for the commentators or for the television to see what are these Kenyans doing. So we had a, a batting pad. I pushed the ball through and I wish there was a DRC then. Uh, and, and the ball game would have, I'm sure, would have changed. <laughs> a lot of people still believe, and I'm sure you will also believe, that you would have given it a, a definitely a DRC to, 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 to check with a, with a third umpire. I'm still believing that he was out with all humility. But again, we respected the umpire's decision and he went on to get his uh, 100 and a majestic 100 he had. And of course, a class cricketer and his records speak for itself. That isn't the big game for Kenya, though, is it? The, the big game ends up being later on. You arrive to play the West Indies basically the night before the game. You guys go and have a look at the pitch. The pitch is green. Just for those who don't remember what the 96 West Indies bowling attack was, it was Walsh, Bishop and Ambrose. You guys aren't prepared. You get there late. The pitch is green. You end up making 166, which is probably still a little bit below par, especially considering I mentioned the bowlers. I might as well mention the batsmen. Richie Richardson, Brian Lara, Shiv was batting then. Jimmy Adams was there. It was a good West Indian side. Maybe not quite at their peak, but certainly not far away. You've made 166. It's incredible to me what happens next. But in your mind, what happened next? Why did the West Indies struggle so much? Let me go a little bit back. Uh, you know, when we got there in the morning, again, now remember, most of the Kenyan cricketers' uh, stars were the West Indies. You know, these are people that uh, you have heard about, you have seen them on television, you have talked about them, 
So it was just like, you know, looking at how they walk, how they practice. When, as we were warming up, we were more looking at them than warming up, if you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> See that body. But I sensed that something was wrong in the team. I felt that their body language was not good from the morning. I don't know whatever issues they had internally. But the biggest thing that came on my mind is Richie Richardson wins the toss and he decides to fail. Now, I would have thought that here is a formidable West Indies team would take it as a batting practice against, I would say, a weak bowling attack, being an associate country, and he goes on to fail. So that, first of all, surprised us also. Anyway, we, and our uh, mission always was that we must bat 50 overs. And remember, we were already on the defense because we are now playing the big names that you just mentioned. So you're already on the tentative mode, but we managed to bat 50 overs. I think we were just three balls short of 50 overs. So we go into lunch. Remember, as you rightly said, we just got into Pune that evening. So uh, like any other uh, cricketers, we were also tourists in the sense that you also want to be a tourist to see what's going on in the cities that you are visiting. So at lunchtime, as we are discussing how many overs these guys are going to finish this match, so everybody gives their numbers, number 30, 25, 35, and all that stuff. So fine. So it was all, everybody was casual about it. And we kind of even talked that as soon as the match finishes, we quickly go back into the hotel, have a quick shower, and then we have a good evening and see the, the city of Pune. Because the following day, we were now to travel to Sri Lanka to play the, the Sri Lankan. So we didn't have much time. And Pune was also another good city to, to go around. So we go onto the field and um, Rajat and Martin Suji, as usual, open the bowling. And everybody is uh, just going casually. And, and all of a sudden, Rajat gets the wicket of Richie Richardson. So we say, wow, great. You know, one wicket now. So let's pick another two, three. So we at least get four or five wickets and we've done well against the formidable West Indies team. And then Martin gets the wicket. I'm forgetting the name of the batsman. And then walks in the, the legendary Brian Lara. And Rajab balls to him. And the first ball, he majestically cover drives him. We are like, wow. You know, he made it look so easy. So we said, okay, well, here is the guy. I think he's going to now have some quick runs and maybe finish the game early. Got beaten a couple of balls. Another couple of overs. They started slowing down. And then Rajab gets the wicket of the tournament, as far as Rajab is concerned. And he gets Brian Lara got behind. Of course, our keeper, who's normally a very good keeper, was struggling that day. And if you can remember, balls were going through his legs. I mean, he's a keeper. So it was, I think that catch was really not a catch. It was a grab. It was more of the, he grabbed the, the ball. And I think the commentators even talked about that. But once we got to uh, Lara, there was a sense of belief that, no, there can be a magic here. And I think we all grouped so quickly and everybody believed and started saying that let's put some pressure on them and we can turn this game around. You know, and Kenyans are very strong in that. The moment you give us an opportunity, we will put a lot of pressure. And I think from then on, it was more like us winning and then when are they going to lose? The pressure was on and on and on. And they really looked like complete uh, school cricket. I mean, the way they handled themselves was uh, shambolic, is the least I could say. Didn't expect somebody with so much experience with such huge names to falter the way they did. But I think, uh, having said that, we need to give credit to the Kenyan team. I think we put the pressure on. The management believed in us. The team believed in itself. And as you say, the rest was history. And we created something that has been regarded 
as one of the biggest upsets in sports history ever. I think it is one of the biggest, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to mention your eight overs, one for 19, but you know, you played your part. But I think looking back, it was certainly the moment that I think the world realized that Kenya played cricket and it was a huge, huge achievement. Let's go to the next World Cup because the next World Cup, you're in charge. You're captain for the 99 World Cup. You know, lovely photos of you at Lords in your blazer and everything. It's not a good tournament for Kenya, though, is it? Well, you know, again, I've always had a different view on that. You know, most people regard that every time, unless and until you win a match, you have not done well. (laughs) Remember, we are a young nation in cricketing terms. Of course, a lot was expected out of Kenya to win. But we are playing in England. And as you know, the conditions in England is very harsh. Here is a team that plays in subcontinent conditions, warm weather, we're now going to England, end of April, beginning May. As you know, you live there. It's very, very cold. And secondly, 80 to 90% of our players had never visited England, let alone play in England. And on hindsight, I feel we should have had a tour to England a year before. For the players to understand the harsh conditions and how to manage in those conditions, you're not used to wearing three sweaters. Now you're wearing some heavy outfits. It's very cold. You're blowing your trying to keep warm. So the conditions for us was very, very, very tough. But having said that, I think the Kenyans were competitive. We were competitive in most of the matches. And the statistics our management gave us at the end of the tour that we scored more runs in the World Cup of 99 than we did in 96. So a lot of good things came out of it. I mean, we became tougher. But as I said, unless you win... You're, you're regarded that you didn't have a good tournament. And obviously now the buzz started coming on to me as the captain that we have not done well. And obviously then I also contemplated of retiring because uh, there was a very toxic environment. I already played for two decades. I mean, 20 years is a long time. But I feel that I should not have retired if the conditions were right because my presence in the team was required as what happened later on, as I'm sure we'll talk about it. So as far as England was concerned, it was great to play in, uh, in England. It's always a novelty to play in England. Uh, I mean, any cricketer would love to play in England and then to have experienced at Lords, to have experienced interacting with all the captains, uh, the captains meeting at Lords was something very special for me as an individual, as a team. I think we did quite well and we started growing within ourselves, believing that Kenya cricket has a good future. You retired at the end of that tournament, did you? Correct, I did. How much cricket did you play over the next couple of years of any level? I played very limited cricket. I mean, you know, when you play at the highest level of 20 years, you kind of withdraw completely from playing because there is really nothing to look up to. You've already had your good share. And and so you kind of involved in other things. As I said, unfortunately, here we didn't have the structures where a cricketer, when he leaves, to come back into the system because experience is something you cannot buy. It's something that you earn. And it's a priceless commodity. Unfortunately, here we did not use the experience of many other cricketers, including myself, to give service and to add value to the youngsters. So I occasionally played uh, club cricket for the heck of just having some fun and to have a good laugh. But there was nothing serious that I played. Kenya was one of the co-hosts of the 2003 World Cup. It was obviously played uh, right across Africa. I think four nations, I think, hosted games, if I remember back correctly. 
you're not going to be involved. But at the same time, there has been this bubbling problems within Kenyan cricket for a long time, which you've kind of alluded to, which is as the team got better and more professional, they felt like they weren't being paid correctly. They felt like they weren't always being treated correctly. Like Little things like not going on a warm-up tour of, of England and th- those sorts of things had all come along. And the players were threatening to strike on the eve of the 2003 World Cup, which is a huge thing because Kenya is going to be a co-host of this event. You were then asked to come back by the board, which makes you look like a spy for the board and puts you in a very delicate situation. Can you talk me through how that happened and what you were thinking at that time? Because you're retired. (laughs) Again, I was in a very precarious position at that time because, remember, this was the same board that created a very toxic environment when I retired in 1999. So there was no way I was going to go be a spy for them or anything. In fact, it was very difficult for them to approach me because there was hardly any communication in those four years between myself and the people in the board. But they were compelled to salvage the situation, as you rightly say, that there was threats of boycotts, there was infighting within the team. And as I said, you know, leadership plays a very key role for any team sport. But for Kenya, we were a young nation. And so leadership required a lot of maturity. And post-99, when I retired, things didn't go well. And it was quite evident on retrospect that I should have continued because they needed somebody senior to put the team together. Remember, this is a team that had a combination of people. You had the the Indians and the Africans. Then in the Indians, you had the, the Muslims and the Hindus. And then in the Africans, you have different tribes. And to top it all up, you've got educated people, and unfortunately, some are uneducated. Now, to put all the team together, it was a very unique team that Kenya was in international cricket. I don't think there is any other team in the world at the highest level where such a combination. You know, where the cultures are different, the religions are different, the education levels are different. I mean, the tribes and so many other things were coming. So anyway, when they called me, they were even hesitant how to talk to me. And so the chairman of selection called me one evening and said he wanted to see me urgently. So I was like wondering, and he's a good friend of mine, but we had uh, communicated very little between those four years because I was disappointed and I was not happy with the way they, they handled it. So he said, I want to see you tonight. I said, but I mean, let's meet tomorrow. You know, what, what's the hurry? It was already evening. He says, no, it's very urgent. So I was wondering, now, what is so urgent about it? Is he in trouble? He needs my help? What's the issue? I said, no, please give me a brief. He says, no, 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 I can't tell you, but please, I need it. I said, I've got a dinner engagement. He says, it doesn't matter. Let's meet after the dinner. So I said to myself, this looks very, very serious because, I mean, how can you not wait for the next day? And you're now telling me at dinner, the engagement, I may finish at about 9.30, So we're going to meet almost midnight. I said, anyway, because of the respect I had for him, I said, sure, it will be. And so when we met, he straight away said, look, I'm not going to beat around the bush. Please forget what happened in 99. I need your help. I said, what help do you need? And I said, I want you to come to the World Cup team. So my immediate question to him was, to do what? To manage the team? He says, no, no, no. I want you to be in the team. I said, you must be joking because I haven't played cricket for four years. He says, it does not matter. Your presence is required as a senior member. There are too many problems. We are hosting and we need to make an impact in this tournament. You know, the, the state status is being talked about for Kenya. And so we cannot falter here. And so please, we need your help. So, of course, I was taken aback uh, and I said, look, I need to think about this and then come back to you in uh, the next two, three days. He says, no, 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 no. I need an answer now because we've got to name the team and we've got to give ICC the, the names because of 
some deadlines. I said, you are telling me on the 11th hour, <laughs> you are giving me no room to think. I need to prepare emotionally, mentally, consult my family. And I mean, as much as it's a World Cup, I also don't want to go there to be an embarrassment. I need to think of how the players are thinking because I was always a formidable character in the team. So I would also be a threat to some of the senior cricketers. So there were so many things to think about. I said, no, you got to give me something. He says, no, no, I'll give it to you till tomorrow morning. 10 o'clock, we're meeting with the board and we are expecting a yes. There is nothing short of that. It was like a zero option. So anyway, I go at night back home. My wife is asleep. Uh, she says, so what happened? I said, no, we'll speak in the morning. Because, I mean, you know, it's something I didn't even know what to think. So obviously I was tossing and turning at night, you know, to, to think what to do. So in the morning I spoke to her. There was, of course, uh, apprehension all around because she knew what I went through in 99 and, and how tough it was mentally and emotionally for me. So I said, do you want to go back into this mess? But obviously in the back of my mind was a World Cup. There's another World Cup coming up. I mean, I'm human at the end of the day. So I said, let me go and see these guys this morning. I'll put in some, some issues and questions and clarity that I do not want to be misused for them to say, yes, Asif is saying yes. So once the board talks to the players to say that Asif is coming in, they withdraw and then they withdraw me. So they could kind of misuse me. So th there was that doubts that also came to me. So I said, well, let's meet on, uh, so as agreed, we met at about 10, 10.30 with the board. And whatever questions I had, they gave me some sense of uh, comfort or reassurance is uh, what it is. So then I accepted the, the invitation. But I made it very clear that they must back me 100%, irrespective of the situation. And they gave me that undertaking. So obviously, when I made the commitment in being a sportsman and being pride of my own uh, performance, I committed to myself there and there that I'm going to work very hard, train myself mentally, physically, and be ready not only as, a, as being in the uh, squad, but when my services are required, I'll be there to give the best that I can. And obviously, I was there to help the team. I had no ambitions of any other. They need me on the ground. I'll be there. They need me in the changing room. I'll be there or for team discussions or anywhere else. But more importantly, it was to bring sanity in the team. And I think that was a, a very good decision by the board, what they did, because my presence all of a sudden diluted things because that very first practice, they were talking about boycotting. They were talking about signing a document where it was like an oath that the entire team is going to boycott if we did not get A, B, C, and D. And I gave a 20, 30-minute lecture to the team. And again, it was unprepared. It just came from my heart. And by the time I finished speaking for half an hour, that document was torn apart and the whole thing was forgotten and we were back to cricket. And so I felt very good about it that my coming back, whatever little contribution I could do off the field, helped to bring the team together where the focus now became to play cricket. And that's what should have been from day one. And that's the history of how I got back in. You do come back. First game is against South Africa. South Africa go very hard at you guys. You get smashed. You're then dropped from the side. The next game is a walkover because New Zealand refused to travel to Kenya to play their game because of safety and security concerns. With you out of the side, though, the team goes on an incredible tear. Canada, who John Davison was playing for them, anyone who remembers the 03 World Cup, what a World Cup he had, uh, you beat them. I mean, you would expect to at least, if not beat them, but be on their level, but you beat them. You then beat Bangladesh, who at this stage are a test-playing nation, even if you and Bangladesh are probably about par. There's still not a lot of attention on you until you beat Sri Lanka. 
And suddenly when you beat Sri Lanka with Colin Zaboya, who might end up playing for even longer than you have, the length of his career is now ridiculous. And still is playing yeah, good cricket as well. But yeah. At that stage, he was quite a young leg spinner. He does really well. They, they beat Sri Lanka. And then suddenly, everyone is talking about Kenyan cricket. I was in South Africa for that tournament. The hype around you guys was incredible because South Africa was tanking. Zimbabwe were... No one was quite sure. And you've now got an all-African derby against Zimbabwe, which is an incredibly important game because if you beat Zimbabwe, you can go to the World Cup semifinals, which, I mean, we're talking about boycotting five minutes ago. Now you've got the chance of potentially doing that. Why were you brought back into the side for that Zimbabwe game? Let me just go a little bit back to uh, some of the facts to put in place. What had happened is that I asked them that, you know, you want me to be in the team so, of course, I'll help externally in whatever needs to be done. But they say there are two matches that they are very uh, keen that I must play because of the impact that I had made because of the history was to play against Canada and to play against Bangladesh. These are the two things, matches the, the management and the selectors here had spoken about. Now, obviously, remember, some of the senior players were not comfortable with my presence there. So, during the friendly matches... I even surprised myself with my performance because I bowled so well. And so they were not very keen for me to play. But because of my performance being so well, there was no choice but to put me against South Africa. I was not supposed to play that match. But because I'd done well, the coach, they said, no, you play. Now, remember, we were skittled out on a very low score. And I came into ball on the fifth or sixth over against Herschel Gibbs and uh, Gary Kirsten. The field is obviously tight on the 15-over rule. And so we were nowhere in the game. So they got an opportunity for the people who were not comfortable with my presence that I did not do well. And, you know, you cannot base a decision on one match, whether you do well, that you are good, or you don't do well, that you are bad. Anyway, the, the next game we were to play was Canada. And that's where I was dropped. So not to win, where I was supposed to play. Anyway, so we went through the tournament. Mentally, it was very tough for me because remember, for the last 20 years that I played, I was an automatic choice. There was not a match that I did not play. So now here, to sit out, when you know you, you the Canada match, I would have done well because of the history and the impact that I had made at associate level. Canada was also an associate country. Bangladesh was just coming out of associate country. They just gotten the status. So anyway, we go through the, the matches, as you rightly said, we go on. And now again, I had a good um, record against Zimbabwe over the years. So the match was at Bloemfontein. We needed to beat them to get to the semifinals for sure. Had we not beaten them, we were still inclined to get to the semis because we had already carried four points in the Super 6. So for whatever reason, they asked me that uh, would like you to play. And of course, I was looking at every opportunity to play. Fortunately, we had a fantastic win. I mean, it was a thorough beating we gave them. And it was a pleasure for me because 23 years ago, they had thrashed us in Zimbabwe. So this was the first time in a big tournament, at the pinnacle of my career, post my retirement, that I'm part of a team that thrashed Zimbabwe completely and played them out of the place. And I think I bowled eight or nine overs for 20 runs. So I had a good spell, played my little role. I didn't get a wicket. But, but again, as I say, there are times when you bowl well, the other side gets the wicket. So that's how I came to play against Zimbabwe. I'm going to leave it there with you guys beating Zimbabwe. And I'm just going to pivot a little bit to talk about something else. Legacy is incredibly important to you. You've sent me your book about your family's history, which is an incredible, detailed book. You made a documentary as well about your family. You ran a sports magazine. I still um, do. 
a sports magazine you still do. Sorry, I wasn't sure yeah, if you were still doing that. You have a sports documentary film festival that you run. You were trying to get up a museum at one stage, I believe, as well. It's a work in progress, a sports <laughs> museum. That's a work in progress. And you also, you tried to turn the story of your family into a Bollywood movie. I mean, on every level, you have pushed this as well. And a lot of this is about yourself and, you know, your long career, but it's also about what your father done. Uh, we won't get too much into it, but your son, Irfan, um, has played college cricket in the UK. He's played nine ODIs for Kenya and averages 44 with a bat. Sadly for him, he lost to Scotland when I was going up against him, but that's no fault of his own. <laughs> and another story, you know, even get away from your father and your son and your brother as well, of course. But another story that I remember you telling me, and I didn't know much about this at the time, was the story of Kenyan hockey and how great Kenya was at hockey for quite a few years before it just sort of fell apart and, and no one picked it up. And there's a brilliant article written about you by a great Kenyan sports writer. And in that, he basically says, in Kenya, we have incredible athletes we have incredible animals and the world knows us for the athletes and the animals and we don't look after either of them it seems to me that a big part of everything that you've done in your life pretty much since retirement has been about you trying to keep athletes remembered and honored and to try and get people to understand that the incredible things that kenyans have done for their country by playing sport that's a very good uh, observation and comment that you've made and let me extend on that I strongly believe that the sports people are the true ambassadors of the country. They represent a nation. And remember, most of the people see their athletes on the screen or at the stadium. But what goes behind it is by far much, much more challenging than the competition itself. Uh, you've covered a lot of sports events. You are, you've gone in-depth. You've seen people from behind the scenes. So you will understand what I'm trying to say. So when you've got these athletes that have done so well for a nation like Kenya, where money is not even paid at all for sports until recently, that these are your stars that have been ignored. I mean, today when marathoners are taking part in the world, you inevitably will say Kenya is going to win. So what better marketing and tourism than the sports people that they are doing? Yet, when you look at how they are respected, I mean, it starts from the head of the state. Is from the top that is ignored. And, and I'm very vocal on this matter, even in the recent interviews that I had during the sports film festival that we had. And one of the purpose of this sports film festival is to document the issues that Indian sportsmen have done over the years. Because I strongly believe in the concept that sports brings people together, unifies people together, and sports movies and documentaries inspire a society. So what better can you give to a third world country to the youths that are now, that are having so many challenges, then to put them into sports. So I strongly believe that it's very important. I've set an example. I've done the documentary, the book, but that's very little. What I have done can be replicated by many others. And this responsibility actually belongs to the government. It's the government's role of heritage, sports, tourism, to bring this together. And if you bring those together, you're automatically increasing the tourism, but you're going to bring in people. I mean, Kenyans over the last 50 years, again, let's go to the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games. When Kenya goes to Olympics or Commonwealth Games, nobody talks about if Kenya will win any gold. The discussion would be how many golds will Kenya win this year? It's an automatic thing that Kenya is going to win the gold. So I think it's something that we have missed out. The government has missed out. It's very sad. But I feel as a responsible citizen, 
let me do what I can do to the best that I can. I've done the sports magazine for the last 20 years. It's the only sports magazine in the country. I mean, it's a shame for a sporting country like Kenya not to have a sports magazine done by the ministry or by the government. Then we have a sports film festival that I do for the last three years. We are getting phenomenal responses from international, though very little from Kenya. But I'm looking at it as a work in progress. The talks are now discussing. So I'm confident that in the next three to five years, you will see a lot of sports documentaries of Kenyan heroes. That's great. And I certainly hope that happens. I want to go to your legacy a little bit here because we've talked about your incredible career. And what we're about to talk about is kind of the reason that I first got in touch with you to write this story. And to most cricket fans, it's it's what you're remembered for. You're playing Australia in the middle of their unbeaten run in World Cups. It's a Super Sixes game. It was just before the semi-final. I was in the ground. It was in Durban. My memory of it was of one of those hot, sweaty days in Durban where no matter what you do, everyone just sweats a lot. Brett Lee took a hat-trick very early on, and Kenya have done so well that they were Africa's team. South Africa were already out of the tournament. You know, Zimbabwe was struggling, and everyone in the ground was there was either an Australian fan or was a Kenyan fan by default. There was a couple of actual Kenyans, but most of the people were South Africans who were there. Yeah. Brett Lee takes that hat-trick, and you just feel the entire crowd deflate. Oh, okay. Well, we had a chance, and it's not going to happen here. You guys actually fight back a little bit, to be fair. You, you end up with 174 for eight, which, to be fair, is eight more runs than you scored against West Indies in your historic win. Yeah. So you've, you've <laughs> given yourself something. So just as you come out to bat, again, there's this sort of rise of, well, if they take a couple of early wickets here, something might happen. And, of course, the complete opposite happens, and Adam Gilchrist goes completely berserk, and Matthew Hayden is batting with him as well. Remember, Adam Gilchrist hit one out onto the freeway, I think, at one stage, and Colin Zaboya was the big hope because he'd been the, the wicket-taker in the tournament, and Gilchrist just ate him up, and it was not pretty. Your seam bowlers got smashed absolutely everywhere. As the power play ended, the score was 109 for two. So you're, they're only chasing 174. The two batsmen were Ricky Ponting and Andrew Simons. Simons had just had his breakthrough innings. He'd smashed Pakistan earlier in, in the series. You then come on to bowl at the end of the power play. They'd learned from their mistake of bringing you on during the power play earlier on in the tournament. They'd held you back. they bring you on. One thing that, you know, originally researching your story, it's Tarzan, and then it's Duncan Fletcher, and then it's Sachin Tendulkar, and then it's the West Indians. It's just one after another. It's this guy that doesn't have this big legacy, that wasn't expected to play when he was young, that was a tennis player at times, who was a professional in the insurance industry. All these sorts of things keep happening to you, and yet in every sort of situation, you end up against these incredible cricketers. By this stage, you can't pretend to me that you don't know who Ricky Ponting is or that it wasn't in your mind. It's Ricky Ponting. And he's the captain of this team. At that stage, he's arguably the best batsman on the planet. In that tournament, what he would go on to do in the final is still one of the best innings that anyone has ever played in one-day cricket. You're bowling to Ricky Ponting. Take me through what happens next. What happened is, uh, I think it was a water break uh, at 15 overs. There were, as you rightly said, 109 for two. And so the power play was over. And so obviously, I think the captain for the day was our vice captain, Hitesh uh, Modi, because he was not feeling well. After the batting, he decided to stay in the changing room. So I come on the 16th over. And of course, I know who, is, who I'm bowling to. And they needed about 50 or 60 odd runs. And the way they were going was a matter of another few overs and the game would be over. The, the crowd was docile, completely docile, mm. because it had, it had deflated the whole match after Brett Lee got three for three. In the, in the early afternoon. So I just said, let me just bowl. Uh, so I came in casually, bowled the first one. 
Vicky plays it down. A ball, the second one, and he turned and he got beaten at the edge and was dropped in the slips. And straight away I say to myself, no, no, I am not going to go through motions here. I am going to be competitive as what I'm known for. I don't mind whoever is betting right now. Let me do what I need to do and let him do what he needs to do. So I kept the pressure on him. And as you remember, every ball he struggled. For whatever reason, he struggled. Either a ball very well or he was casual about it. And so when I saw him struggling for the fourth ball, I said, let me bowl him a quicker one. And the fifth ball came in. And then, as, as I said, rest is history. And that's why we are sitting here today. I think that one over in the World Cup, the 16th over of Kenya versus Australia, is what is being talked about for the last 17 years, including today. Uh, <laughs> and so that was a wicket that I would rate as number one wicket for me, because as you rightly said, he was the number one batsman in the planet at that time. And, and what he did post that match in the finals. And Ricky was a huge name. I mean, very, very big name. And he used to uh, massacre any baller. I mean, that Australian team, I think you mentioned to me, was the best one-day team ever in the history of Australian cricket. So you are dealing with a team that's hammering every team. They came from a very tough position against Pakistan in their first match. And Rusayman gets a solid 100. And so they became strong and strong. And here is a team, Kenya, that is doing well in the tournament. Uh, had some luck during the tournament. Had a walkover match against New Zealand, but was still doing well beating three testing nations. And then to come against Australia and then to do well. Remember, that last one hour was completely dominated by myself. I mean, I was the talk of post that one week, you know, from that one hour. And there was nothing before then. So that wicket, I think, was something that I think will be talked about for a very, very long time. And so when I got that wicket, and obviously Collins was bowling on the other side, he was also uh, had the confidence he was bowling well. But I think Adam Gilchrist shattered his confidence. And so he was, became a little weak. But obviously, he was still putting the pressure on. And so mm. myself and him kept the pressure going. And I mean, I bowled something that normally is not even done in club cricket. The statistics of eight overs, the six maidens, two runs and three wickets is really not even a club statistic. So in fact, at one stage, even when I looked at the scoreboard, I was wondering, really, is that the, the correct analysis? Because... It said five overs or six overs, something, and five maidens, three wickets, and just two runs. So it was unbelievable. It was something very, very special. And then you get Darren Lehman. You know, again, you know, he was uh, played with his mind and got his wicket. And then Brad Hogg comes in like he's in a hurry. I don't know. He was walking. And maybe that's his habit. Walks very fast, briskly, and then I get his wicket. So by the time I got those three wickets, the statistics read two overs, two maidens, zero runs, three wickets. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, Darren Lehman was probably Australia's best player of spin in that era. Correct. You rag one, I think, it really spun. And then the next ball, you push through the quick one. Barry Richards calls it on commentary. He says, if he's clever here, bowl the next one. And you did. And then Brad Hogg weirdly came in ahead of Ian Harvey, which doesn't really make sense realistically because, you know, anyone who'd seen both of them bat, it was, Ian Harvey was clearly the better batsman. So either they were trying to get some experience in for Brad Hogg, or they were a little bit worried because they'd lost the two quick wickets, that they might have needed the more defensive batsman to come in. Brad Hogg, as you said, he walked very quickly, which I suppose he always does. But, you know, looking back on that footage, he looked so nervous. And you've suddenly got this incredibly attacking field. That bit makes sense because any spinner on a good day with good skills, even if you hadn't played in four years, you can always have that moment. That bit makes sense. 
Let me take you through it from my point of view. There have been times in this game where the crowd had been excited and Australia had kept flattening them, right? This is the first time when it just kept building. The crowd didn't go straight in for you. Even though you got the three wickets, they started slowly because they were like, Simons is going to belt him everywhere. And then Lehman comes in and Lehman will work him out. And then Harvey comes in and top. Well, now they've got Harvey and Simons, two of the most aggressive, best hitters. You know, Harvey obviously went on to be the first batsman to make 100 in a T20 game. Andrew Simons, even when he was well past his best, was still a great T20 player. They were incredible hitters of the ball. That's the bit where it goes bananas for me. I can understand you getting a couple of wickets and then not scoring off you. But to have Andrew Simons and Ian Harvey at the crease and block out a retired insurance broker from Kenya who is in his 23rd year of his career, who's not supposed to be playing in that, when they are the best team on the planet by a distance in that particular tournament. Watching it back and watching Andrew Simons push you back and watching Ian Harvey nervously defend. I grew up watching Ian Harvey play in Victoria. I'm not sure I've ever seen him defend any time as much as he did facing you. And so... What is going on in your mind? Because you're thinking one more wicket here and we've got a chance. You're in this incredible zone. And sadly for a lot of us, we didn't see a lot of you playing cricket before then because a lot of your games weren't broadcast. But clearly you can see what a competitor you are. There's a moment where Andrew Simons, I think I think it's Simons, almost hits a court and bowled to you and you sort of tumble down. So you look every inch the 39-year-old office worker at that point. The, the look on your face is like a stone-cold killer. So what is in your mind? Are you still thinking one or two more wickets here and we win this game? Yeah, I think what happened after getting a couple of wickets, I think I became much stronger. And I think Australians, uh, as much as I reluctantly would say, I think became defensive. All of a sudden, I felt they got worried. And saying that this is a Kenyan team, that if you give them an, an open a door for them a little bit, they'll clamp you in. So I think in their mindset was not to take any chances maybe to play me out. I mean, I had put a lot of pressure on them. And as you rightly said, those two batsmen have a reputation of hitting, irrespective of who the baller is. So they were struggling. I mean, Ian Harvey was was shaky, I would say. You know, he, he looks completely tentative. And he was like, just, just uh, going to, uh, to finish my overs. And as you rightly said, the next three, four overs were more like maidens. They were not even close to getting a run. It wasn't like something that they were trying to get around. So I think I put a lot of pressure on, on them and I think it got to them. And I think our fielders also backed me very well. The fielders also put a lot of pressure. The body language that we had became stronger. And I think it was something that the Australians had to just go through that wave to get out of that mess. Uh, and lucky enough, they needed only a few runs. Yeah. Had they needed a much bigger run, I think would have tilted either way. And it's worth saying, you bowled 29 consecutive dot balls. And I think that must have included Ricky Ponting, Darren Lehman, Brad Hogg, Ian Harvey, and Andrew Simons in those 29 consecutive dot balls. You said they played you out a little bit. We've seen good one-day batsmen play out bowlers before. They still get singles. They couldn't find singles off you. I mean, you had completely clamped down. And you're right. I think you bowled two poor balls. It was a full toss that Simon should have got away and a short ball, but everything else was right on the money. And it was an absolute masterclass in left arm finger spin. And I'm assuming it looked like you're in a zone. Is that how you had played your entire career? Or was this something even above what you had ever done before? No, I, I think that's a kind of very good observation, whatever you just mentioned. I was very competitive. Whether I played a league cricket match or for the national team, I believe that I must give my 100%, irrespective of who I am playing. 
So I was very competitive and it was a similar thing that happened against the Australians. I was on the zone, you know, and, and as, as I said, when they gave me that opportunity and getting those two wickets, my sense of belief increased 500% within myself. But then I didn't even look at who I'm playing. I said, I'm going to do my job, what, what I'm known for, what I'm good at. Instead of me worrying about what they will do. Let them worry about what they need to do. Let me do what I'm good at. And so the pressure went on to them so much. As you are uh, saying those things, I'm now trying to remember again and trying to picture Durban right now and on Kingsmith ground on what, what we went through. And you are so perfect. I mean, you watched this spell, I think, to the core. You can describe every delivery from what you're just saying. So, yes, I was very competitive. It's something I thrive on when I play my sports. And I think that's what is required. You've got to play hard. That's what you're there for. You're representing your country. You're representing yourself. And you want to do proud to, to the performance that you're doing there. So it could not have been a better exit, if you want to call it, or a finish to a career of 23 years against the best team in the world, in the planet, at that stage. And the icing, as I always say, is to get man of the match. Despite losing, despite Bradley getting a hat-trick, despite Gilchrist getting a, a 65, and here is a team that loses, just comes one hour before the end of the match and gets on to get the, the gold watch. I can't ask for a better uh, closure to, to my career. It was incredible. And being an Australian fan in, in that moment and the way that the crowd started to just slowly get behind you. Amazing. No yeah. one in that ground could understand what was happening. And that's why I went back all these years later to do it. Uh, sadly, right towards the end, you weren't quite on the top of your game and you let go a couple of runs. And, and Ian Harvey actually hit the winning runs off your bowling. If you could just say your bowling figures exactly and very slowly, what were your exact bowling figures? And I know you know this. You probably got it tattooed on your chest. <laughs> But before I give the, uh, the bowling analysis, you know, when I finished the eighth over, the stats read as eight overs, six maidens, two runs and three wickets. <laughs> so as I was walking back, I mean, Buckner, if you remember, Buckner shook my hands twice or three times during the spell, <laughs> which is very unprecedented for an umpire. I mean, that's done after a match, not mm. during a match. You know, it's a cricketing principle. So even I was feeling a little embarrassed at that stage because, you know, here's an umpire, you know, I'm not used to that. But anyway, after the eighth over, when I was walking back, Australians needed four runs. So for me, Peter was bowling the other end. For me, the game was over, that they were going to get the four. And, and I was hoping that the game gets over so that I don't have to bowl again. Because, you know, I mean, the whole crowd, because when I was walking to the fine leg, the entire crowd there was rooting amazingly for me. I mean, you know, every ball I uh, delivered, there was a screen. I remember at that stage, every delivery. So anyway, they get two more runs in that over and I had to come back to ball the ninth over. Now, Morris from the changing room, which was right behind where I was fielding, was screaming to say that I should not bowl the ninth over because he felt that the record was solid. Mm. Forget it, don't bowl. But then it was incorrect not to bowl because that would have not reflected well. Yeah. I had to bowl. I was bowling well. And I said, no, I am going to continue bowling because it was also an opportunity of getting another wicket. Or if I don't get a wicket, it's okay. And unfortunately, I was hit for four. In fact, that last over... Five runs went. The first run, Simmons got an edge. He didn't get a comfortable single. It was an edge one <laughs> run. And then Harvey hit me on a full toss. And then when I got back uh, to Kenya, there was an Indian magazine that gave the 10 top economic bowlers in the World Cup. And you'll be surprised I'm number five in the world at 0 .2, 0 0.4 or something. Had I not bowled the ninth over, I would have been number one to date in world cricket. <laughs> 
<laughs> but anyway, to answer your question, the final analysis was 8.2, six maidens, seven runs, three wickets. It's incredible. During the research of this, I came up with the names of the players that, that you have got out in your career because I wanted people to understand that despite the fact we only know you for that one spell, that one spell is kind of your career, which was stepping up when no one expected you to and bowling against some of the best batsmen in the world. And I talked to Steve James, who played cricket for England, and I think might have played against you. I can't remember. It was either England A Tour or it was a, um, he might have played with one of the South African teams, but he was one of the batsmen you had dismissed. And I said to him, do you remember this left arm finger spinner from Kenya? And he said, no, Jared. And then he said, but let's be honest, who remembers left arm finger spinners? And he's got a point. It's that kind of role. So you had on top of being a Kenyan cricketer, you bowled the sort of deliveries that everyone sort of ignores, the sort of dour middle overs where no one's hitting you. But I'm just going to read this to you, and I know you could add some more, but I'm going to try to not add any extras to my list. This is a li list of the batsmen that you have dismissed. Delete Vensaka, Vinod Cambly, Ken Rutherford, Roger Binney, Kapil Dev, Chris Cairns, Chris Harris, Craig Spearman, Steve James, Rizwan Al-Zaman, Shoaib Muhammad, Richard Illingworth, Jeremy Snape, Basil Shotgun Williams, Mike Atherton, Peter Willey, Andy Pycroft, Alistair Campbell, Brant Flower, Akram Khan, Mark Nicholas, Brad Hogg, Murray Goodwin, Duncan Fletcher, Stuart Carlisle, Gary Kirsten, Ashinka Gurusinger, it's hilarious at the names we're up to, Ajay Jadeja, Raul Dravid, obviously, I can't believe I sped through Raul Dravid, but Raul Dravid's one of them, and then on top of that, obviously, Ricky Ponting, Duncan Fletcher, and... Yusuf Patan, Tarzan. It's incredible to think back the sorts of players that you dismissed. And had you not bowled this one spell when you weren't even supposed to be bowling, your entire career would have been, you know, I mean, I've written about this. I know Indian magazines have written about this. Tim Wigmore wrote about this as well. The fact that Bollywood was even looking at it is because of that one spell of bowling. And yet you had essentially done this for a whole career. It's just that none of us had noticed. Well, thank you very much for that very kind uh, remarks that you've given uh, I'm humbled with with all that you said, and it reminisces me the the good days of cricket that I managed to play for proudly for my country. Uh, and yes, you're absolutely right. This is um, quite uh, humbling what really you're saying. And that uh, Australian spell is why we are here today. And um, it, it's something remarkable. And so it's something that will be remembered for years to come. And I remember my interview with you when you were doing the article. And I told you uh, earlier uh, last week that is one of the best articles anybody has ever written about me. And I put it in the, in the coffee table book as you received it. It was so thoroughly professionally done, very well researched. I mean, to get all these names, I couldn't even remember some of these names. And when you did it, it even surprised me because I had forgotten some of these names. And remember, we are at a nation where we play cricket more in terms of enjoyment, and at the same level, it's only that the 96 World Cup took us to a new level. Remember, I'd already played 15 years for the country by then. So that's why they, we have no history. We have no record keeping. The record keeping that I have, I can proudly tell you, I must be one of the only ones that's got these records of the cricket that even our board doesn't have. The photographs, the scorecards that I have. It's a shame that we didn't keep all these records because Kenya has a very rich history. We are 120 years old in cricket. The first cricket was played in 1896 in Mombasa, which is 120 years yet today when Kenya should have gone to 
much higher than Bangladesh with all due respect to them. But I'm very proud with what they're doing. We have let ourselves down and it's very painful. I'm sorry I'm bringing it up because when you've got such a rich history of where Kenya has come from to where we have reached, there are many other good performances. I think we have, we have let ourselves down on where we are. But really, thank you for, for uh, the, the respect that you've given me over the years, the respect that you've given me on that article. I mean, I'm really touched with, with the names that you went through right now that I really have nothing more to add. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast and thank you for that bowling spell. <laughs> and thank you for all the, the respect and honour. I wish you well with the continued great work that you do. I do follow you on Great Info. You write fantastically well. I think you're one of the top, not because we're talking, I really mean it. I think you're one of the top journalists in, in cricket and the coverage that you did, including the movie that you did, is something that I enjoyed watching. I hope you can do more of this and continue the great job that you do. I wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to delete all that. I can't have someone being that nice to me on my own podcast. No, but it's a fact. <laughs> it's something that's factual. And I'm a guy who speaks, as you know by now, I speak my mind. I honestly believe that yourself and team are doing a fantastic job. We need more like you. I hope you guys are developing other journalists because it's very important that the continuity must be there. It's, it's very, very important and really great, great stuff that you're doing. And anything else I can do for you, whatever little I can, you can please count on me at any stage. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. <laughs>